thankful for the way these stories hold on to the lifetime we won't get back. I know these rivers carry. Welcome to Kankakee Podcast. I'm Jake Lamore, your host, and this is where we talk about the people and places of Kankakee County, and I'm very, very excited about our guest today. We all love coffee, um, whether it's uh, decaf or caffeinated or tons of creamer in it, no creamer in it. There's Most everyone likes their coffee in a certain way. And uh, our guest today might be someone you know, might not be someone you know, but regardless, he is uh, the head honcho and creator over at Connect Roasters here in Bourbonnais. Let's please welcome Caleb Benoit to the podcast. Hi, Caleb. Hi, Jake. Thanks for having me. (laughs) Of course. It's so great to have you here. I keep looking at you and I keep, I, I apologize if I ever say Colin. At, at any point. You would not be the first, nor will you be the last. Yeah, no. And and I know it's the same for Colin when it's, he probably gets called Caleb, I imagine. A little backstory on that. Colin Benoit is your brother. Colin and I played in the projection for many, many years together. He was the drummer. And obviously you two look very much alike. You both have C's in your name. I know how that feels because my brothers and I are all J's. My dad is a J, so... You get it. I, I, I totally get it. it. I've been called worse than Collins. So. <laughs> we, we probably won't get into that. But um, what's funny is that, uh, fun story, for those that don't know, I did have Connect Roasters roast some coffee for uh, a special Wake and Jake blend last year. In fact, I still have some for sale. If you want to hit me up on that, go to kankakeepodcast.com and get some. I remember when I got a chance to see the Connect Roasters facility in Bourbon A, I walk in and I look at you. Not only do I see Colin, but I'm like, <laughs> he looks like Patrick Dempsey. And I don't know if you've ever gotten that. I've but got, I get a few. That's that's not the first time I've gotten that one. That's a good one. It is. And I'll I'm just it. like, I'll man, if I ever need a Patrick Dempsey like lookalike for any type of video thing, I'm, I'm gonna guy. I'm gonna hit you I'm up. I'm your guy. Maybe that's a side <laughs> hustle I can I can start. <laughs> I mean, you really could. I'm aside from, especially like you would look. It, it just makes you even. Uh, you know, Patrick Dempsey is a very handsome guy. Yeah, and get a cup of coffee in your hand. It just it completes the the picture. I dig it. I'm gonna have to think about that. How can I? How can I leverage this? There could. I was monetize it. Right. Uh, I would say some type of like a McDreamy uh, blend okay. of of Connect Roasters. This is interesting. Coffee. I didn't anticipate this being a product development session, but I like where this is going. This is good. I'm just not, not that you need help because Connect Roasters has. I appreciate that. Though. Has um. It seemed to do so well for itself since starting in in 2016, and and of course we'll we'll dive into that. Let you know. Let's start at the beginning of Caleb Benoit. So, I know you were born and raised here in Kankakee County. Your family's been here for a long time as mm-hmm. well. When what's the story of how your family made it to Kankakee County? If if you know it, I I can't remember. I'm yeah. sure Colin has discussed it with me if, at some point or another. Yeah, but. I mean, we we have done some like genealogy work and family history, putting together the family trees. Uh, so my dad's side of the family immigrated from the French part of Quebec in the middle of the 19th century, so like 1850s. And they were a part of kind of an exodus out of Canada, folks who landed in the Midwest and were farmers, right? And so, you know, you go back to great, great grandfathers, you know, a few generations, they were farming land in here in in Kankakee County. And so that's why you encounter so many Benoits in this area. Most of them know each other. They're all my dad's cousins and they're all farmers at, at one point in time. 
you guys lived in the Hersher area originally, or Bonfield, yeah, right? Yeah, so I was, born, I was born in Kankakee, just my brother and I. Uh, I'm four and a half years older. We moved out to Bonfield when I was five, right before I started school. So grew up in Bonfield. My brother and I went through that Hersher School District, so Bonfield grade school, Hersher for junior high and high yep. school. So yeah, we we spent our entire childhood out there in in County West and played played baseball, limestone little league, County West soccer. I was always I was always into sports. My brother Colin was into music, and so once we got to like junior high, high school, I was playing soccer, basketball, baseball. He was in marching band, jazz band, that type of thing. But uh, yeah, spent spent most of our formative years and our childhood out in, in that part of Kankakee County. Fast forward, you obviously being living in Bonfield, you went to Hersher High School. Yep. You graduate from high school and then what happens? Where did you go from there? I went to Olivet Nazarene University here in Bourbonnais. So went to school there for four years, studied journalism, was part of the first graduating class of journalism journalism majors from Olivet. Oh, that was a brand new... Yeah. When I... Uh, I think it was maybe my sophomore year, they instituted journalism as a major. And so I, I started as like mass communications or something like that, and then decided to go down the journalism route. Growing up, I always wanted to be a professional athlete. I wanted to be a professional baseball player. And so you get to a point in time when you realize um, that dream is probably not going to be a dream fulfilled. Realize you're not going to, <laughs> you know, I wasn't going to go down the path of a major league player. And so, but sports were my thing and I wanted to stay close to sports. And so I saw journalism as a way to do that, right? If I can't be the athlete on the field, well, I can be in close proximity to the athlete on the field. And, um, got good grades, was good in, in English, enjoyed writing, and so saw that as an opportunity. So yeah, majored in journalism at Olivet, started working part-time for the Daily Journal newspaper, specifically in the sports department there when I was a freshman at Olivet. And so did that my entire four years in, in school. That was a, I don't know, a training ground for, for me to learn uh, how to do that job. And then once I graduated from Olivet, I moved into a full-time position there at the Journal as, uh, in the newsroom, working as a newspaper reporter. And that was, you started going to Olivet, that was what, in the <clears throat> mid 2000s? Or? Yeah, I, yeah. so I graduated from Hersher High School in 2002, uh, so it would have been that fall. Yeah, so started working at the at the Journal in 2002, I guess it would have been. So what did you play in baseball? Because you said you played for the Tigers. What did what yeah. was your position? I'm sorry. Yeah, I played infield. <laughs> I played um, mostly second and third base. And then I actually played one year of baseball at Olivet. I was like last man on the depth chart or on the roster. We had a really good team. It was the last Olivet team, I believe, that went to the NAI World Series. And so we got to go to the World Series out in Idaho, played with and against some some Major League Baseball players or future Major League Baseball players. So pretty high level of competition. But it was in like that period of my life that I realized like, hey, I'm, I'm not going to the bigs. Uh, so I better find a different career path. <laughs> well, you tried, yeah. right? I mean, and I, I, can, I can relate to that. So you're working for the journal. You're uh, when you started working full time. Were you specifically focused on sports, or were I was? I think at the time there were four, maybe five full time guys in the in the sports department. So yeah, I was one of I think four full time sports writers at the journal. Those were good times working at the journal. And we can talk more about that if you want. Oh no, but... I mean, what what are some other things you remember from your time working for the journal? Obviously, that was your first. That was your first uh, real job. Uh, real job. Yeah. I mean, the thing that I loved about that was every day was something new. I was constantly meeting new people. You know, working as a reporter, you're you're having conversations with new people all the time, right? And so, meeting new people either in this community or people that spent time in this community, hearing their stories. I mean, you're in the storytelling business, right? You you yeah. know what that's like. Getting to hear compelling stories from people you're you're meeting every day. It's just that's really gratifying. Um, and as somebody who was in that business of storytelling, it was really, really nice. And so that's, I think that's, that was one of the highlights for me doing that job, uh, reporting and editing is just learning about people, learning about their journey, their struggles, their successes. You know, I did a lot in sports and so a lot of it was revolved around sport, but, um, yeah, no, just, just great. That was, that was the highlight for me. So going from the journal, I know, I remember at one point when Colin and I, your brother and I, were were still playing together. You were in Paris. Yeah. So I, when did that come in? I moved. I was twenty seven. 
So I decided I'd worked at the journal for a handful of years and decided I wanted to do, wanted to do something different. And so I'd always kind of regretted not doing some type of study abroad in school when it's easy and when a lot of a lot of people do it. And um, it's probably cheaper, I would imagine, at that point, or maybe not. Yeah. Uh, so I, I had the good fortune to find a, a program that allowed me to move to France. So I lived in France for a, uh, an academic year, and I worked as a, a teacher's aide in some in some grade schools. There's a program where the French the French government realizes they're not the their school system isn't great at teaching English, and so what they do is every year they bring over over 2,000, 2,500 native English speakers to help teach English in their school system. So I applied and got accepted this program that placed me in Normandy, France, teaching English in, in grade schools there. So got paid to do it, got to you know see a beautiful country and learn about a beautiful culture. So yeah, really rewarding experience. But yeah, I left the journal to move to France. It's amazing that you were you landed that experience considering I well I guess uh, having a, a background in communications helped but you weren't like an English well, major in the yeah the surprising thing about that I can't believe they accepted me like <laughs> the the program was specifically tailored towards students I was no longer that students who were interested in education I didn't study education and I had I couldn't speak French you know, I got a, f a French last name, but yeah, that was really the extent that, of it. That must have been what it was. <laughs> yeah. And so, you know, I, <laughs> I I regret to say this, but I took two years of French in high school, two semesters at Olivet, and I, I didn't learn how to speak French. I did once I got there, but yeah, I can't believe I got accepted, uh, but I did uh, somehow. And yeah, it was, a, it was a great experience. I My one piece of advice for students and people trying to figure out what they want to do in life as a career, going abroad, uh, living in another country, having a cultural experience like that is always a good idea. There's no downside to that. Um, you learn so much about other people. You learn so much about yourself. For me, it was very much a, a personal and professional development season of my life. So I always recommend, there's a million ways to do it, but I always recommend exploring that idea because I think it's valuable. Yeah. Because even if you have like, you, uh, even if let's say you went to <clears throat> Normandy and you had a terrible experience, nonetheless, you're going to take something away from that experience. hundred percent. Yeah. <laughs> to, and that was kind of my attitude. I'm, I'm thinking through it you know, like what's the downside, right? I go, I've signed a contract to be here X number of months. If it's terrible, then I come back when I'm done and I move on, move on, go back to the journal, do something else. The downside was, was minimal in my mind. So um, there was only upside to be gained. So what was the, the big thing? What, what do you remember when you first landed? And cause you had not been outside of the country <sighs> no. before that. So here's, here's what I'll tell you. I, so I knew I couldn't speak French. I knew that I needed to learn. And so I did this thing in like the three or four months before I left where I, I thought I could cram, like I thought I could learn French in uh, like three months. You're like, yeah, I could do that. Yeah, no yeah, problem. I <laughs> so I started cramming, you know, I had CDs I was listening to and, and this thing and that thing. And I, I had told myself, I had convinced myself, I don't know why, but I told myself I'm at like a conversational level without really testing myself. It's just a lie I told myself. And so I get on, a, I get on the flight and I'm sitting behind two French girls, uh, teenagers or early 20s, and they are having a conversation with each other. And it's in that moment that I realize I don't understand anything they're saying. And I've been lying to myself for three months. And so I was saved by the fact that in this program, there were other native English speakers in the same region, teaching in some schools that were not far by, they had a higher level of French than I did. And so I relied heavily on them and tagged along with them to sign the lease for the place I was living and get a bus pass and all of those things that you do when you move to a new place. I would have been I'd be lost with without them. So I don't know what I would have done, but I was a bit of a disaster for a, for a while. <laughs> how long did it take you to to grab on to you know, it's it's funny how quickly you can learn a foreign language when you're just dropped in the middle of it and have have no choice, right? When you when you get thrown off the the deep end of the pool, you you learn it quick. Um, and so, I mean, to be honest with you, in a few weeks, I probably learned more than I did in a classroom in three years, right? I was I was making a concerted effort, trying to be intentional about learning it. So, you know, having intentional conversations with people, like, hey, help me out. Like when I make a mistake. Don't just gloss over it, like point so it point out. Point it out to me. Yeah, please. I want to learn, right? So I kept a notebook and tried to write down common phrases and 
really tried to listen for those things I kept hearing over and over again and tried to put the pieces together. So yeah, it, even as adults, you know, learning a foreign language is one of those things that, that people say, it's like, oh, it's so much easier as a kid and you can't do it when you're older. Not true at all. We underestimated how powerful our, our brains are and our learning capacity. Uh, so if you put yourself in the right environment, anybody could do something like that. Especially when you have no other choice. Right. I mean... It's sink or swim, right? <laughs> it's either I learn how to talk to you or we're not communicating yeah. or we're playing charades. When did you develop your passion for coffee? Where does that come in? I, I don't know if that comes from France or if that was before, even before then. Yeah, no, actually it's after. So uh, I finished up my my teaching contract in France, came back here, started working for the, the journal again in a different capacity. I actually ended up moving to Toronto, Canada after that. I started working for a French company, which I got connected to in France and moved to Toronto and lived and worked there for two years. And what were you doing for that company? Yeah. So they were in the kind of software space, selling software to publishers. Uh, and I had worked kind of on the publisher side, working for a newspaper. So I knew the customer side a little bit and had moved to uh, Toronto to open up and run a business development sales office for this company. They had done a bunch of work in Quebec because of the common language and were looking to expand into the rest of English-speaking Canada and into the US. And so, so I moved there and did that. But I only say that because I actually founded and started Connect Roasters while living in, in Toronto and moved back here in part to run the business full time. So I had taken a couple of mission trips with local churches to the Dominican Republic in Haiti. And it was there that really the, the seeds for Connect were planted. For me, it was my first time in a place like that, first time seeing like real poverty for, my, for myself in a developing country and came back from two trips in consecutive years, really having a hard time reconciling this idea that me and everybody I knew had plenty of everything, right? We're like in the top whatever fraction of the 1%. And so like, I don't worry about where my next meal is coming from. I've got a roof over my head. But after those trips, I now knew names and faces of people who didn't, right? And so I just, yeah, I had a hard time reconciling that. I started thinking through some legacy type stuff, right? Which is kind of weird when you're, you know, in your late 20s or early 30s. But is, is, did you make these trips to uh, Dominican Republic after your, this was after your stint in France? It and, was. I mean, and while you, this was while you were living in Toronto uh, or? It was after so, France, but before Toronto. Okay. Um, and so, so, so this is like the the early twenty teens or twenty tens or yeah. twenty. I don't know if it's twenty tens, twenty teens. You know, I kind of like twenty teens. We'll go yeah. with we'll go with that. I mean, yeah. So that's that's the time when this was happening. And so, yeah, I started thinking through some legacy stuff. Like, man, when I when I retire, whenever that is, when I'm done working, and I'm, am I going to be able to look back and be proud of what I've done? Uh, specifically, can I look back at my body of work and say, hey? I've done something for someone else and not just myself, right? Uh, have I left some kind of, of legacies, left something behind even when I'm not here anymore? And so I, I, didn't, I didn't necessarily like the answer to that question I, uh, I had at that time. And start, so I started thinking through like, okay, I've had this experience. I have a time reconciling that. Uh, there's some obvious problems, uh, you know, poverty, food insecurity, those types of things. How can I be part of the solution? So I was kind of toying with like what my next career thing was going to be. And so I started thinking through like, okay, a place like I had just visited, what do they have that is valuable? A, B, can we monetize whatever that thing is in a market like the US? And then finally, C, can we do it in a way that's responsible, where those who are helping produce the product, wherever it comes from, where they're realizing some of the benefit of us selling it and, and running a business. And so Coffee is one of those things, right? Coffee is grown primarily in the developing world, obviously consumed at scale in a market like the US. And then that's where Connect Roasters comes into play. That fills that third leg or that, that C part, building a business to do this type of thing in a responsible way. And so when I founded Connect, I knew that one of the pillars or the foundation was going to be a give back model where people on the ground responsible for producing the product, or at least in communities where it's coming from, that they're realizing some of the the benefit of us roasting and, and selling coffee and running a business here in the US, if that makes sense. It makes perfect sense. So the did you connect then with some of the growers or, or farmers in the Dominican Republic? 
or the Dominican Republic that you had visited that on some of those trips or where does, where does that come into? Yeah. So we actually, as a business got our start, not in the Dominican, but in Guatemala. Okay. Um, you know, I, as I'm working all this out in my head and deciding kind of what this is going to look like and trying to flesh it out, I, I shared these ideas with a friend of mine, John Keen, who's from this area. And he now lives in Guatemala as a full-time missionary in Guatemala. Oh, wow. Uh, married, has, has two kids down there. And so he 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 was living is living in Guatemala full time, and in the place where he's living and working on the, on the mission field, the plot of land is actually situated next to another plot of land that happens to be owned by a coffee farmer. <laughs> um, and so my friend John was able to to connect a few dots uh, for me, and I actually visited Guatemala and visited this coffee farm well before like the company was actually a company, right? Like I was on a coffee farm before we had bought a single pound of coffee before we had a way to roast it or, or anything like that. So I did things maybe a little out of order, but that's how that relationship came about and how we were able to get our start. Well, that was probably the whole reason why you went, right? You wanted to see the coffee. One, the, one of the reasons you went, you wanted to see the coffee farm, right? I mean, in, well, in Guatemala, yeah. yeah. I mean, I, yeah. I went down there to see the see the coffee, but it's just, I think most people may not start that way. Mm-hmm. You know, if you're going to start a business, you think about like, okay, well, what equipment do I need? Or yeah. how am I going to get this product? I'm like, no, let's just, let's go to, let's check it out when it's yeah. grown, grown in a field. So you go to Guatemala and do you actually... What happens from there after you visit the coffee farm? So, and what, and what, and what did you, what did you, I have no idea what a coffee farm even looks like. Can you kind of describe? Yeah. So coffee, coffee is a crop like corn and soybeans. Coffee beans are, we call them beans, but they're actually seeds. So they get planted in the ground like any other crop. It takes about three years for us to see any fruit from the coffee plant. Three years. Yeah. So if we pl- if we cow. planted coffee today, we wouldn't have a usable product fruit. We wouldn't have coffee for three years. And so, yeah, it, it grows in the ground. It gets harvested between December and February in Central America, for, for example. We call them coffee trees, but it actually looks more like a, a bush. And so the the plant itself and the field itself is not necessarily impressive, but obviously the the product is is wonderful. the The beans or the seeds actually grow inside a, a fruit that kind of looks like a cherry, and so people in the industry actually call them coffee cherries, and those get picked uh, right off the tree like any other fruit, and then it goes through a processing method to essentially remove that seed or bean from the from the fruit. So we don't typically consume the fruit. You can, um, but it's the it's the bean or the seed that's so so valuable. What does it what does that fruit taste like? Is it hard? Is it, it soft? It's it's soft. It's actually it's got it's got a pleasant taste. It's kind of funny that we don't use it in any way, shape, yeah, or form. Yeah, I don't think I've ever no. tasted it's um it's not super sweet but it's sweet enough that when you you take a bite you're like okay uh it's pretty small it's smaller than a like an actual michigan cherry or, or whatever but the the spanish word for what it for that fruit is called cascara which means like husk and so every once in a while you'll see some roasters and we've experimented uh using the dried fruit as like a, a tea okay which is actually quite quite pleasant but that that's about the extent that I've seen cascara used. Uh, I think several years ago, Starbucks rolled out some like cascara lattes. Um, that sounds familiar. You can use it like if you took the dried fruit, you could make a, a really nice simple syrup out of it. And it's kind of akin to honey. It's got that same consistency and it's got a sweetness to it. It's really nice. But yeah, it's coffee. Coffee is the seed of a fruit that grows on a tree. I never would have guessed. (laughs) Well, it's one of those things that we don't really think about, right? Like we consume it for days on end and never think about where it comes from. You know, one of the things that we try to communicate that's uh, that I try to communicate to our customers and really anybody who will listen is like, man, we don't realize how many hands have touched this product before us, right? Like we open up the bag in the morning, we grind, we brew, we sip, but like, man, that coffee has touched so many hands from beginning to end, from the time it was planted. Like you don't realize how many steps that took before it gets to Bourbon A, we put it in a coffee roaster and then we deliver it to your house or, or put it in the mail. So the, it, when it comes to like 
marketing and brand identity. Like those are the types of things that I love to communicate. I love educating people around coffee, but also kind of open up people's eyes or, or just bring more awareness to like, man, how this got from point A to your your cup in the morning. It's always fascinating to hear the behind the scenes, in my opinion. And just hearing this now, I love, love hearing this. So you, you're seeing, I'm sure your mind, did you know how coffee was made when you first saw that, or, or grown, I should say, did you know how coffee was grown before you got to this farm in Guatemala? I knew nothing. I knew yeah. nothing. I started a business about I started coffee business without knowing much about coffee. Um, it's one of those like, do as I say, not as I do. Like, do, don't do what I did. Um, but I, yeah, so it's been a journey of of learning for me, right? And so I've been able to learn from, you know, visiting coffee farms in places like Guatemala and the Dominican Republic, industry events. I've been, I've had the good fortune of having some like coffee mentors, people have taught me about the business and about all the elements that go into doing what we do. So yeah, it's been a it's been an education journey for for me. But looking back, I knew embarrassingly little about what I was getting into, and and maybe that's the way it goes, right? Like anybody who starts something new or starts a business, like you have blind spots and you figure it out as you go. You don't know what you don't know. But yeah, looking back, it's like man, I I really didn't know what I was <laughs> what I was doing. I can say now I do, but at yeah. the time, not and so much. you're still learning. Of course, and, well, and still always trying something new. I mean, that's that's the beautiful thing I think about, or one of the beautiful things about starting something—a project, uh, a business. You're always learning something new, right? And I think I I'm a I'm a student at at heart. Um, that's one of the things I loved about journalism. I was always learning something new, and that's what I love about being a business owner. Is there's always something new to learn. We we're, we were never a a finished product, if you will. Yeah. So. Knowing very little and learning what you did on that coffee farm in Guatemala, then what what came next after that? So I, having been to Guatemala and forged some relationships there with suppliers, uh, I now needed a way to like roast the product. Like green coffee, unroasted coffee is is great, but we can't do much with it without roasting it. I'll never forget when I came by to pick up that Wake and Jake blend of coffee and you, you gave me a, a, a little bit of a, a tour of the place mm-hmm. and you you showed me the the big bin of unroasted roasted coffee. And you're like, yeah, smell that. <laughs> it smells much different unroasted than it does roasted. And you're like, does, right? does that remind you of a the smell of, you know, smells like manure, or whatever, <laughs> you know. It smells like a farm. It smells like a farm. Yeah, yeah we, we don't have much use for unroasted coffee, so you've got to roast it. I didn't, I, I'm not, I'm still not a coffee roaster like myself, right? I know enough to be dangerous, but I didn't know how to roast coffee. I didn't have the machine to do it. So the next step was, hey, I've got to f- find a way to roast the coffee. So the beginning of Connect, the first chapter, we actually partnered with uh, an existing coffee roaster in the Chicago suburbs and had a had a partnership with them where I was buying all of the unroasted coffee for Connect, deciding what coffee to buy, what not to buy, how we were going to market and sell it. But they were handling essentially the manufacturing. It was kind of like a co-packing uh, relationship. And so that allowed me to get the company essentially off the ground. I was handling the sales and the marketing. And we grew from that stage, right? From from nothing, from having some unroasted coffee, finding somebody to roast it from us and, and for us and going from there. So you started buying directly from a farm in Guatemala or? Yeah. Yeah. Essentially like the, those, that farmer, that estate, that family farm that I visited, uh, the first coffee we purchased came from them. You know, you, you've got to work with a couple other people in between to handle things like border stuff, FDA regulations, all of that. What are the FDA regulations? I don't, that? I don't mess with it. Um, yeah, <laughs> so you've got to have things like import licenses. Um, when, when the product comes to the US, whoever's buying and selling it, it's got to go through inspections, uh, border, border patrol at these big ports in the US. And so I think they're looking for things like contaminants and they want to make sure that taxes are paid and, and things like that. To be honest, we don't get our hands dirty in, in that and stuff. Then, we work with other companies that kind of handle okay. all of that, so the, that back end. You've got like a middle, almost kind of like a middle person yeah, to do that. It's a middleman. I mean, middleman yeah. has a big, bit of a negative connotation, but it does. in products like coffee, they're completely necessary and bring a lot of value actually in the supply Life, chain. It sounds life-saving actually. <laughs> yeah. Like I don't know. 
Yeah, I don't know how you'd start a business and handle all the logistics from from A to Z. Like, you would you would spend your whole day just on you never sell any. The, yeah, you never sell any product. <laughs> no, never sell any you product. wouldn't. No, you'd be too busy trying to just get the raw product to your well to your just, door. Yeah, trying to navigate the red tape that comes with government too. It's like I can't imagine. So yeah. so yeah, we the first coffee we we bought and we roasted and we sold came from that farm in Guatemala. And I'm proud to say that what is it? 6 years later, we are still purchasing coffee from that from that farm and uh we've purchased more and more every year just because our business has has grown. So, you know, you've you partnered with a company up in the the Chicago suburbs and yeah. they're kind of putting things to get the, the actual coffee together for you. Yep. Then how are, how are things going at that point? What, what brought it to where you were able to start doing more of the, the roasting or the things yourself? So what comes next? Yeah. So we're able to grow the business to the point where it made sense in my mind to kind of bring the manufacturing in-house, if you will, and make the investment in things like equipment, in training for us to do everything that we needed to do ourselves. And so we did that in 2019 and we decided, I decided to do that here. We could have done it in Chicago, could have done it in the in the suburbs closer to Chicago, but having been born and raised here, I really wanted to put the roots of the business here in Kankakee County. So we signed a lease uh, for a space in Bourbonnet, the one that you visited. Yep. And moved in there in 2019. And uh, it was interesting timing given the pandemic that was coming. Of course, we didn't, didn't know that at the time. No. And I probably would have done some things differently. We all would have if we had seen that coming. But yeah, we started roasting coffee in Bourbonnet in 2019. We bought, so this, is, this will be a funny story to connect a few dots. So to roast coffee, you need a roasting machine. I developed some contacts in the industry and started putting some feelers out. Hey, we need to buy a roaster. We need to buy a roaster. And so uh, we actually bought a used roaster from a company called Madcap in Grand Rapids. Madcap was founded by a couple of guys with local connections. Trevor Corlett's originally from Kankakee. And Ryan Knapp, I went to school with at Olivet. I believe he's from Bloomington, Illinois, originally. And so those guys founded founded a coffee company in Grand Rapids, Michigan. And we ended up buying a used coffee roaster from them, bringing it back to Kankakee County, huh. uh, where they both spent a lot of time and wow. started running the business of Connect from from here. So yeah, that's how we got started in Bourbonnet. That's small world. <laughs> yeah, right? <laughs> and, and a lot of people remember Moon Monkey Cafe in yes, Kankakee. Absolutely. That, that was those guys. Oh, okay. Yeah. So before no Madcap, that was uh, Moon Monkey was their their business in, no in, way. in Bourbonnais. So when I tell people that, a lot of people remember Moon Monkey. Oh, yeah. Like, I miss Moon Monkey. <laughs> uh, my, my wife played uh, shows over there, played the, the guitar. Colin and I played shows yeah. over there. Yeah. Uh, we, just about everybody in the music scene, I think, played shows, or at that time at least. If you lived here in that time period, you were at Moon Monkey for one reason, reason or another. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Whether it was, yeah, you're just hanging out with your friends or you played a show there or whatever it was yeah. you were there yeah you know yeah my my wife my wife played a show there well before i ever met her and she knew lupe carroll who had played some shows there and so it's just funny we're making all these connections like my wife's not from this area she's from chicago originally but it's funny how moon monkey and just coffee in general is that meeting point for community to facilitate that type of thing so yeah absolutely it brings that common point now how in the world did you get hooked up with the Chicago Cubs? So I'll tell you the story. Right at the beginning of the pandemic, so this would have been spring of 2020, just over two years ago, we get uh, a message, a DM on our Instagram. Greg Ratton, who him and his wife live in Bradley, uh, they both work for Connect. Greg roasts coffee for us. It's their anniversary today. It is. <laughs> the, the, day, the day we're recording this anyway. Happy anniversary, yeah. Greg and Jessica. Yeah. Happy anniversary. Um, so he, Greg runs an Instagram account called Coffee and Cards, and it's exactly what it sounds like. It's coffee and baseball cards, which we're both kind of into. And he had posted a photo, I think... I think it was a cup of coffee and an Ian Happ baseball card. Ian Happ is an outfielder for the Cubs. And so Greg tagged Ian in that photo. That got Ian's attention. They were out in Arizona for spring training that time of the year. And 
Ian, you know, clicked a couple of times, connected the dots and came to the Connect Roasters profile. And he sent us a DM and said something like, hey guys, love what you're doing during the pandemic. Keep up the great work. Some, just something as simple as, as wow. that. And so, you know, you open your DMs and you see a message with a blue check mark and you're like, oh, okay, well, what's going on here? And so we sent him a message. I sent him a message back, said something like, hey, appreciate you reaching out. Would love to send you some coffee if you're interested in letting us know what you think. He had just started a podcast and had talked about his love of coffee on the podcast. And so Greg alerted me to that. We sent him some product. I get a text a few days after he got it and said, uh, he said, hey, love love, love the coffee, tastes great, would love to get on a call and talk about some ideas. And so he's got a bunch of interest off the field. He's business-minded and was looking to partner with a coffee company. And so we got on a phone call and he had the idea of launching a coffee that specifically to support COVID relief. Again, we're in the middle of the, or towards the beginning of the pandemic. And so I said, hey, great idea, opportunity to do some good. It fits within our mission. Uh, it's stuff that we're already doing, this give back type of thing. And so in a matter of a couple of weeks, we launched what we called Quarantine Coffee. Funny name, but the, the foundation of it was $3 from every bag sold supported COVID relief agencies. And so we specifically partnered with a couple organizations. One was the Greater Chicago Food Depository, which operates as basically the, the food bank for Cook County. They are the suppliers for most or a lot of uh, food pantries and other food uh, soup kitchens in, in Cook County. So, so we started supporting them through the sale of coffee and we still support them. And we were able to provide, have been able to provide close to 30,000 meals through their network just from the sale of coffee. And so that's how, that's how we ended up or started working with with Ian, one of the Cubs players. And so he came on originally as kind of a, a brand ambassador around that product that turned into uh, an investment in Connect Roasters. So he's a, he's a partner in Connect. And so he's done a lot of work to help us open up some doors. So for example, we've got the coffee in the clubhouse at Wrigley Field. So it's what's brewed in the clubhouse, in the locker room. So it's what players are drinking before they go on the field before games. Uh, we've had some other business opportunities come uh, as a result of just the visibility that he's brought to the business and his name recognition. So you made it to the major leagues. One way or another. <laughs> I knew it would happen eventually. I didn't know how, but I mean, one way or another. Yeah. I don't think you could get any closer, right? <laughs> so in October, we did um, we did like a marketing video photo shoot at Wrigley Field right after the end of the season. And so it's kind of funny that you say that, but, you know, we're on the field doing some recording, you know, we're in the in the bowels of Wrigley Field, in the batting cages, getting some footage of Ian hitting and, and this type of thing. And so, yeah, that's about as close as I'll probably get to <laughs> being a Major League Baseball player. Gosh, that's amazing. That is such a cool story. It, it, just a simple, you know, DM on Instagram. Yeah, I mean, I feel, I feel fortunate. I think if there's a lesson in that, maybe one of them is that, you know, from a, from a business, from a marketing perspective, you know, putting yourself in the, uh, in a position for success, right? Like, you know, it's easy to chalk that up to like luck or good fortune. And I suppose part of it is, but like, you know, uh, our Instagram page, like looked good and it communicated our, our mission, uh, what we were about, uh, our values. And so I think, you know, that caught his eye obviously and started the conversation. And so I think, I think, yeah, I mean, you know, maybe one lesson in that for business owners or people in marketing is like, hey, some of those things matter. And there's such a thing as putting yourself in a position to take advantage of an opportunity when it presents itself, if that makes sense. Because if you didn't, it, it makes absolute sense, because if you didn't take the time to make sure that your Instagram was appealing as far as marketing to the eye and making sure your mission was right out there in front, like. This is what we do because we're not just another coffee company. Yeah. You know, we're, we're different. You, you made it known that you were different from the others. And I think there's probably another lesson in there where it's like, you know, the intersection of multiple interests or experience is a place where you can leverage some leverage your experience and, and, and find some success, right? Like, you know, I was running a coffee business. I've always been a big baseball fan and it's, it's kind of weird that 
at that intersection is where we were able to gain some traction and start to grow the business, right? And so, I don't know. There's a niche for everything, right? Like, you know, a large subset of our audience are people who not only love coffee, but also love baseball, right? And so, a large part of our marketing is with those those people, those customers in mind. And as a coffee lover and a baseball fan, I can market to them because I am them. You are them. I am them. And the the lockout, was that what it was called? The lockout blend? We've done a, yeah. So we did the <laughs> that, quarantine coffee. We did the lockout blend more that, recently. Another genius idea, if you ask me. You t- you totally took advantage of that that MLB lockout thing that was going on for, well, it's funny. like forever. Ian texted one morning in the middle of the lock, lockout and he said something about like, hey, what's what do you think about putting this out on Twitter? It was really a joke. Like we mocked up a coffee bag and did the lockout thing. You know, on Major League Baseball was using the the silhouette of the image of the players as this thing on their website. They scrubbed their site off, uh, scrubbed the site clean of players' names and images, and so that became kind of a a symbol for the lockout. And so we mocked something up, threw it up on Twitter, and like. The response was huge and people are like, where do I get the lockout blend? Where can I buy the lockout blend? And I'm like, well, it doesn't exist, but it can. Uh, And so in a few days, we were selling the lockout blend and we partnered with the Players Association to support some of their efforts in in, in that, like kind of fitting within our give back model. And it was a huge success, but it came out of a, hey, let's throw this out on Twitter and see what happens. And it was a joke. Yeah, because you got to think of the the professional baseball players that aren't the ones you hear day to day on the, all the different sports shows. The ones that aren't making millions of dollars, yeah. they're they're hurting during that lockout. Yeah, I mean, obviously everybody is for sure, but you know, and not just them, but all the other people that are encompassed, all the other businesses, right, that are encompassed in the Major League Baseball for sure. umbrella. And that's specifically what the Lockout Blend supported was uh, some businesses in Florida and Arizona where spring training is held that were negatively affected by the lockout and by the pandemic. You know, it's it's easy to think about professional athletes and, and think of them as one in the same, you know, these multimillionaires who are are rich and and many of them are right but the truth is not everybody's making 25 30 million dollars a year no um you know if you are uh, the major league minimum is something like 700 750,000 which is a lot of money but to get there you've toiled in the minor leagues making 30 grand a year or whatever like you you've you're not you're not rich and famous right and yeah. so the majority of the the players union uh, are players like that not the guys superstars making 25 mil a year which is super easy to forget. I know the other day I, I read something. It was talking about professional players. And I don't know if this was baseball. I think it might have been encompassing professional athletes maybe as a whole. But it was like their average salary is like fifty or $70,000 or something like that. And I can't remember. I feel bad now that I can't remember if it was talking about a specific professional league or if it was kind of just yeah i mean it's the difference in mean and median right like the top end of the scale skews the average in that direction it's like man the player making 25 million he doesn't he doesn't necessarily represent the majority of players in the league or in the sport right like sure you've got guys like that but then you've got how many minor league baseball players playing all over the country going from city to city in buses and eating Taco Bell for dinner, like everybody else, right? Like, yeah, and they're trying to get their their call, their call up to the for sure the majors for sure. So, um, so yeah, I mean, the lockout blend supported those those types of things, and um, yeah, it's you know it, we were marketing, trying to market in the moment and uh, take advantage for for good of 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 the situation at hand, and so we've had some success doing stuff like that. What other things have really helped? connect roasters. I mean, I feel like your connection with Ian Happ and having him now a part of connect roasters seem to really do some great things for you for connect roasters. Um, It opened up, I'll give you a couple of examples. It opened up the door for us to work with a company called Foxtrot Market. Um, Foxtrot, I've seen you post about them. Yeah, they just opened up their 20th store. And this one, 
ironically, right next to Wrigley Field, like literally right next to Wrigley Field. <laughs> and so they've got our cold brew on tap there. We did a photo shoot up there uh, with Ian last week. They're, most of their stores are in Chicago, but they're also in markets like DC, Dallas. They're opening up some, some stores in Austin and they're kind of like this upscale, very curated convenience store, if you will. And yeah, the the relationship with them started around a conversation with with Ian. They've been an awesome partner. Uh, we have our coffee in, in all of their stores and have been growing alongside of them. And so just been a really nice showcase for our brand. Their branding and marketing is is great. They they source and sell awesome products. I wish we had one closer, to be honest with you. Um, but that's been a really nice relationship. And we're always looking for wholesale customers, partners like that, that represent our brand well and have customers like our customers, like people who buy coffee off our site and appreciate quality and the mission and the give back model. So that's been a huge success. Uh, we're now in approaching week four out at the farmer's market in Kankakee and Ian's not down there brewing coffee or, or anything, but we've been out there, I think this is our fifth official year at the farmer's market. And we've seen it grow and we've grown alongside of that. Our first three weeks out there, I think two, we broke our own sales records That's awesome. uh, out there. And so it's just a really nice opportunity to connect with our local customers who are some of our most loyal customers. And, you know, from a, you know, you put on your marketing hat, there's really no replacing this opportunity to engage with a customer. You know, you hand them the product they try it right there and you're getting like feedback in real time and you're able to have a conversation around that. That's one of the valuable things about the farmer's market. And so we love being out there. I was out there this past Saturday helping take orders and, and make drinks. Um, and so we just, we love being out there and I have loved to see that grow over the last several years. I still haven't had your cold brew and I've been meaning to to buy some and try some of that because I keep hearing great things about it. The The coffee that you had roasted for me is literally the smoothest cup of coffee I've ever had. It's just got such a smooth, at least in my opinion, it's got such smooth overtones to it. I appreciate you saying that. You know, you were talking about the beginning, how everybody kind of has their own coffee habit. Some people drink it black, some people put cream and sugar in it. And we, yeah. you know, you do you, we never judge anybody for how they drink their coffee. But one of the things that I always say is, I think good coffee can stand on its own. Um, if we're buying quality coffee and we're roasting it in a way that highlights the positive, I can I can brew a cup and put it in front of you and you can taste it and you should be able to drink it without cream or sugar. Now, if you want to put cream and sugar, you do you. But <laughs> but good coffee has a natural sweetness. It should taste bold, not bitter. Uh, you shouldn't cringe uh, as you drink it black. And so we we pride ourselves in that and try, like that's a litmus test for us, right? Like, can I hand you or me a cup of coffee and and drink it and pick out some some nice elements to it and uh, find the positives in it, including sweetness and smoothness. I was in Chicago a couple days ago and I had something for the first time I didn't know existed and that's barrel aged cold oh, brew. Yeah. Have you ever had any of that? I have. Uh, and we've experimented with some barrel aged coffee ourselves. So well, what did you think of it? It it was, it definitely had a taste I've never obviously yeah. had before. And it was more on, it, it was a stronger it sounds this sounds silly but it tasted i felt like there was whiskey in it yeah and i guess that's just because you know well there's a good there's a bar, it was in a barrel like whiskey yeah is, so. that's the explanation so what what roasters typically do and what we've done is they'll take they'll take a barrel that contained whiskey we've done it with rum and even after you take the liquid out, there's some residual li liquid in the wood. Like wood is porous, right? Yeah. Um, and so there's some whiskey still in the in the wood of the barrel. What we'll do is we'll put unroasted coffee in that barrel and let it age, quote unquote age. And so wood is porous, coffee is porous. And so that unroasted coffee will actually absorb some of that residual liquid from the wood. And so- even after roasting, after brewing, you can still get that note of whiskey or rum or whatever it was aged, whatever type of barrel it was aged in. It comes through, believe it or not, in the final brewed product. I'm glad to know I'm not crazy. You're not. Because when I was drinking it, that's what I kept thinking of. I was like, I feel like I'm tasting and that's <laughs> some whiskey in That's there. the goal. The ones that are done right, in my opinion, are have this balance between okay, this is obviously coffee and I can taste the coffee, but there's something else going on here. And it's this 
whatever this butterscotch or vanilla or whatever is represented in the whiskey, it comes through in the coffee. It's a cool idea. It's fun. It's yeah. fun. It's one of those things that I, I think people appreciate, you know, something, something different. Uh, we sold a, a rum coffee, a, a barrel aged coffee last year before the holidays, uh, did kind of a limited run. It was a big hit. So people, people appreciate something different like that. You should probably be doing some more of that. Maybe. Yeah, for sure. For sure. I think I know. I think I found a customer. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Speaking of customers, you know, th that's something we want to point out is, is you can obviously get Connect Roasters coffee online, connectroasters.com, out at the Kankakee Farmer's Market. Are you out at any other farmer's markets? We're just in Kankakee right now. We have a local delivery route we do ourselves twice a week. And so if you order coffee on our website, because whatever, you missed us at the farmer's market and you're not out there, um, you can just choose free local delivery at checkout if you're a Kankakee County resident. And then we pretend we're the post office or UPS. <laughs> and then we'll just drop it off at your house. Um, just like the milkman. Just Yeah. It's kind of a throwback, right? I it like, is. I kind of like that idea. We'll drop it off right at your house if you're in Kankakee County. Um, I still would love to do a, a Connect Roasters coffee shop. I uh, wondered if you had ever given that a thought or if it was always like, eh, I don't know. I mean, in some ways, it's a different it's a different business, right? It it's, really is. It's a different business. We're in very much in manufacturing right now, and that's kind of hospitality restaurant type space. But there's so much overlap uh, and there's a lot of reasons that roasters do it. And so I, I would love to do it. My original vision when we moved into the facility in Bourbon A on William Latham was to do it there. Pandemic threw us a number of curveballs, And so that never came to fruition. But uh, I would still like to do it and I'd like to do one locally. I think it's a great way for people to experience our, our brand. Um, and like we talked about or alluded to before, like coffee shops, cafes, can be these places when they're done right, can be a hub of activity. It can be a community meeting point, meeting point. And so I, I would love to, I love to be in, in that space and be in the middle of that. Okay. So there's, <clears throat> there's definitely a, a possibility for that somewhere down the line for when, sure. when it presents itself or yeah, when it's I mean, figured out. Realistically, I don't know if that'll be this year, but I would love to, to have something like that, at least in the works in the next 12 months. I feel like that is one of those thing that, things that has to be done at the just the right time, <laughs> I yeah, would imagine. Time, I mean, location, uh, yeah. you know, there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of factors. But I, one thing I know, uh, and I know this because we've been doing this for five years here, I, I know residents here will support it. If it's done, if it's done well, people here will, will support it. And so I take confidence in that and uh, I feel confident about, about doing that because of that reason. Okay. I, I agree with that. I mean, the fact that they've already been getting familiar with you now through the farmer's market, and obviously you manufacture your, you roast your coffee here, yeah. you deliver here locally. I think that that will definitely get some excitement, you know, when that actually opens up. So for sure. Now I had a conversation on Saturday at the farmer's market and someone specifically asked me that question. Hey, when yeah. are you opening your coffee shop? I need another place to go. And yeah. so, uh, yeah, it's conversations like that that also give me confidence that we could uh, we could do something like that. <laughs> I guess we could even get even further into coffee just a little bit as far as the actual roasting part goes. Yeah. So how does that process work? And I remember when you were roasting the Wake and Jake blend, it was what, two or three different types of beans, I think. So, yeah. So I'll give you a high level uh, Cliff Notes version <laughs> or coffee for dummies. So we have a machine that roasts the coffee. Basically, you need to get the unroasted coffee up to 400 degrees and it's in the machine for nine to 12 minutes based on the coffee. So we have a drum roaster where you drop the beans in and it rotates in this drum that's heated by a gas burner. It's actually really similar in a way to your oven at home. So you can get surprisingly good results if you took a cookie sheet and you took unroasted coffee, put it on a single layer in the cookie sheet, put it in your oven for 10 minutes at 400 degrees, you'll get surprisingly good results out of that. You could brew Have you it. done that yourself? I, ha I have. I <laughs> yeah. have, yeah. And you can get really close to, you can get somewhat close to what we're doing, right? Um, but the idea is the, is the same, right? You've got to heat it up. It loses some of the moisture content. Obviously, the, the cell structure of the, 
of the bean itself uh, changes, but it goes from this like greenish blue color to, to brown. And it's just, it's the primary manufacturing part. You know, our, our roasting machine can do about 20 pounds at a time. We can do about two and a half batches an hour. So we can crank out about 50 pounds of roasted coffee per, per hour. When I brought the Wake and Jake coffee home, my car smelled magnificent it's for, the, for about a week or two. It's the best air freshener you could have. <laughs> yeah. Even if you're not a coffee drinker, get a bag and just keep it in your car or your whatever room in your house. And it's, there's no better air freshener. Oh, man, it just, it killed me every time I got in the car. I'm like, man, I just want coffee right now. <laughs> it's funny too. Uh, you know, we source, we buy coffee from a lot of different places in the world, right? Central America, South America, Africa. Uh, there's coffee that comes out of Asia. And it's not possible to grow it here, right? Or is it just extremely hard? Um, so coffee is grown commercially in Hawaii. And that's about the furthest away from the equator that coffee is grown commercially in the world. Um, in recent years, there's there have been some efforts to grow coffee commercially in California, actually. But yeah, I don't, I don't, we're not going to be planting it here in the Midwest anytime <laughs> soon, <laughs> rotating with, you know, soybeans and corn. And, three years. And, I can't wait three years. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's, it's funny though. It's not funny. One of the realities of coffee is like, you know, in a place where natural disasters happen, hurricanes in places like Puerto Rico, when you hear of coffee crops getting wiped out, that has a serious effect on the economy and people's livelihoods. I mean, imagine being a farmer here in Kankakee County, something happening, happening, you need to replant and you don't get anything for, for three years. I mean, that's, that's, that's serious. So it, that's the way the genetics or the biology of, of, of coffee works. But yeah, when stuff like that happens, it has a uh, serious effect on on farmers and the economy. What is the trick to getting the best cup of coffee at home? Is it grinding the beans yourself? So fresh? Yeah. So here's what I tell people. The biggest thing you can do at home to up your coffee game is just buy freshly roasted coffee. And so whether you get that from Connect Roasters or somewhere else, whatever, but uh, roasters who care about quality will put the roast date on the bag. They will tell you when that coffee was roasted. And we tell our customers coffee is at its freshest uh, in that first 30 days after roasting. So it doesn't spoil like milk, but I, I compare it to like to pop. If you've got a two liter of pop or soda, you open it up, you know, your first glass, it tastes amazing. You're getting like the full experience, 100% of what Coca-Cola wanted you to experience. But if you put that in your fridge and leave it there for two or three weeks and then pull it out, you've lost something when you taste it again. It's flat. <laughs> that, that's old coffee. Old coffee is flat pop. And so the number one thing you can do is buy freshly roasted coffee. You know, you can grind it at home too. Finding that right grind size is pretty important. The coffee to water ratio is important. If you've got too much of one or another, it's either weak or strong. But you can do those things to, to taste and mess with the variables. But the number one thing I tell people, whether you get it from us or somewhere else, just buy freshly roasted coffee. Do you like your coffee strong? How do you like your coffee, Caleb? <sighs> so I am partial to our Guatemalan coffees, I think maybe because that's where we got our start. I love coffees that are medium roasts. I love the dependability that comes with coffee like that, those tried and true coffees. I've had some that are kind of on weird ends of the spectrum in terms of flavor, but I always come back to ones that are kind of chocolatey and nutty and yeah. dependable, if you will. And so, yeah, at home, we've got a, we've got a traditional uh, electric coffee maker, which believe it or not, is not taboo. You can make good coffee with those. Um, I've got a Chemex too at home to do like pour overs, uh, which we'll do. So I love trying new things, but I always come back to those medium roasts from Guatemala. I think they'll, they'll always be my favorite. Is it true that the, I know there's a conception that dark roast coffee is stronger and has more caffeine, but it's actually the, like the medium roast that has more. Is that a true, do you, can you, <laughs> I can, I can, I can answer that. Yeah. Uh, it's mostly a myth. Um, oh, so it is. Your coffee, whether it's light, medium, or dark, that's basically the same amount of caffeine, unless you're drinking decaf. That's another story. Yeah. But dark, medium, light, all has the same caffeine. The only, the only, or 
the variable there is that the long this is getting nerdy and into a little <laughs> no bit of i love it because that's something it's it's a it's a conversation i've had with a lot of people and it's something that i try to look up here and there yeah we can't control it by like uh the farming technique or the processing but coffee that's roasted longer darker loses more mass right so it takes more of those beans to brew a cup of coffee and so if there's a difference in caffeine levels between roast levels it's only because of that and the difference there between like medium and dark or light and dark is so negligible i don't think it's perceivable by the human so and and so you really would have to just add more grounds if you have right right so if we're weighing our coffee which is how i often decide how much coffee and water we're going to use you know you're using a little bit more dark roast to get to the same weight if you will but Again, like I don't think you and I are going to be able to tell the difference in the caffeine level. So I don't know how that started. I've heard people say something about like, you know, the, I had a blonde roast at Starbucks and I was like bouncing off the wall. But I think it's all like anecdotal evidence. It's nothing. I blame Starbucks because I think I feel like they teach or at one point. Because I've had Starbucks baristas or some of them yeah. t- tell me mm-hmm. that that the the dark roast has less caffeine than the the medium. Yeah, I don't think there's any truth to that. I'm not a Starbucks hater. Um, yeah, I think here's what I've always said about Starbucks: I couldn't do what I do, and Connect could not do what it does had it not been for Starbucks kind of paving the way for us. Like you take a step back and you look at like coffee history and the way. Uh, the coffee market has developed in this country over the last 20 or 30 years. Starbucks really paved the way for a lot of roasters like us to do what we do. So I'm not a I'm not a Starbucks hater. I do find myself there from time to time. Uh, I usually get a chai latte and not coffee, but I don't. I'm not a Starbucks hater. And it it's easy to to hate the big guy, but at the same time, you do have to acknowledge that wow, actually they they kind of created my. For sure. My my job. <laughs> For sure. And they're the big guy because they've been successful, right? Like, yeah. you know, there's some other companies. You look at somebody like Intelligentsia. Intelligentsia started as a Chicago, like local coffee roaster. And they've grown into this national brand because of their success, right? So we, do we hate them because they're successful? No, I don't. I don't think so. So, I mean, I hope at one point, like, connect roasters will have that problem right like <laughs> trying to strike this balance between you know being local and maintaining quality and then the challenge of trying to scale that and and still hold true to to how we started and why we started like that's a good problem to have right i would say it's a very good problem to have <laughs> right <laughs> caleb this has been so much fun i know i could go on forever because i love coffee i got a billion coffee questions as always but yeah, obviously connectroasters.com. What's a what are some be- other better places people can find you or we're all over social media. Uh so if you're on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, uh you can find us and follow us there. Uh, I started messing around with TikTok recently. I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> I'm still learning it too. So. But we've got a few uh cool espresso videos on TikTok. Yeah, if you're local, find us at the Farmer's Market in Kankakee on Saturday mornings from now until the end of October. We'd love to talk to you, meet you out there, serve you a cup of coffee. Yeah, connectroasters.com. Social is where we update people on new stuff that's that's happening. Uh, you know, if you find yourself in Chicago, go to a Foxtrot location and get a bag of our coffee. Go to the one next to Wrigley Field and get a cold brew on tap. And appreciate you inviting me to be on and yeah. uh, talking local stuff and talking coffee. Yeah, man. I, I appreciate all you do. And I'm really glad Connect Roasters is right here in, in Bourbon A and in Kankakee County. Me too. So. Me too. And we <laughs> plan to be here for uh, for for a while. I hope so. Uh, Going to be uh, lining up for that that store. Well, well <laughs> storefront when that, that comes, shop. Well, when that comes, we'll announce it. Maybe I'll I'll break. I'll have you break the news for us. We can... I would be honored to have the exclusive on that. We'll, man. Uh, I'd we'll, love we'll that. Turn you into a true journalist. And we'll <laughs> there we go. You heard it here first. <laughs> I've got this on recording. Yeah, so. that's good. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Caleb. My pleasure. Well, that concludes this episode of Kankakee Podcast. I'm Jake Lamore. Thank you so much for listening. 
Please share this podcast with a family member, friend, or neighbor you think might enjoy learning new things about the people and places of Kankakee County. Also, a special thank you to our patrons for helping make this episode possible, including Jake Lee, Jesse Arsenal, Dave Barron, Daryl Damper, Samantha Rocknowski, Lake Iverson, Travis Garcia, Jane Bostwick, Karen Bishop, Dawn Harrison, Simon Topless, Scott Wright, Carrie O'Connell, Jamie Race, Joanne Barry, Anthony Vicelli, Eric Olson, Dan DeBoard, Jeff and Rosa Carroll, Teague Drenan, Sandy and Steve Twait, and Rose Lucky. To become a podcast patron, go to kankakeepodcast.com and then click on the patron tab. If you pledge $5 or more per month, you'll also hear your name announced on an episode. There's also other rewards like early access to new episodes, extended versions of episodes, video versions of episodes, which is something brand new, podcast merch, discounts on special events, and so much more. Your monthly pledge is truly appreciated. Our goal right now is to reach $400 per month, and we're about 60%. Uh, of, of reaching that right now. So please sign up for the patron program today at kankakeepodcast.com. Our theme song is by Lupe Carroll. Talk to you next time. This river can-